Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program of table talk with scholars, artists, and librarians about research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted to be talking with three guests on the program today who have edited, or, or perhaps the better word is curated, the artist's book that forms the basis of an exhibition in the art library here at Vassar. That exhibition is called Other Imaginings, Artists' Collaborations with Gandhi Ashrams. The book itself is called Other Imaginings. One of my guests is the prime mover and orchestrator of the book, Aaron Sinift, an artist who lives nearby in Beacon, New York. Hello, Aaron. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Uh, really glad to have you. And also I'm really pleased that our other two guests are joining us from their home in Varanasi, India, via a Zoom link. They are Kakashan Khan and Jitendra Kumar. Uh, hello, Kakashan and Jitendra. Namaste. Namaste, Tomazi. This is really wonderful. It is wonderful. It's a wonderful technology that allows us to talk like this so easily and that we can have this kind of a virtual conversation. It's an instance, I think, of technology being able to bring people together, in this case, from so far away. And it's wonderful that Kakashan and Jitendra can be part of our conversation about this book since they can give their perspectives on other imaginings that Aaron can't entirely give us himself if he were here in the studio. And since the book is a communication technology and represents a collective endeavor that brings people together, not unlike Zoom in that way, uh, ideally, maybe I could ask each of you to talk about how you came to know one another and how you met, because this is a collective thing. I mean, the project is collective, so hmm. people have to meet and they take an interest in one another when they do meet. So that's what I'm asking about, I guess. Yeah. So. Well, I was in Varanasi and I was working on the first book, which is called Five Year Plan. This was back in 2009. And I went to Harmony Books, run by a man named Rakesh Singh on Asigat. And it's an incredible bookstore resource in Varanasi. It'd be a great bookstore anywhere. And anything you want to know about the region or, or about culture in, in India, especially, Rakesh's bookstore is great. And I was there with Andy Rotman of Smith College as well. And he recommended that I reach out to Dr. Muniz at Khan. Because at the time, I was looking for partners to produce the five-year plan book. I had the resources, but I didn't know who I was going to be working with in India at that point in time. And Dr. Khan recommended that I find Kakashan. And so we met out at Rajgat. And um, we... Spent the evening having, we had dinner with her and her sister and, uh, and just talked late into the night. And I came away very impressed with her intelligence and her commitment to social justice work. And in the end, also, I realized that she was so committed to her social justice work, in fact, that she might not be a great initial partner on the project because I needed somebody who was going to be able to completely focus on it the same way I was at that time. And so... You know, I ended up working with someone else. But when I returned in 2013 to do another project, uh, the Jola project, I naturally thought to reach out to Kakashan and uh, visited her and got to meet Jitendra in Varanasi in 2013. And um, we had a great time together. And um, we went to the Sri Gandhi Ashram in Sarnath. Sarnath, yes, Sarnath. And... Um, 
that was a fantastic visit and it changed everything because that was what started the other imaginings project mm. it was spontaneous between the three of us that this was something we could do together uh-huh. so in a way the book brought you together i mean the book was a finding agent in a way in that way uh, the way it does with the individual images in the book and the way books do it is a binding technology after all so mm-hmm. yeah it's totally spontaneous yeah. yeah great i had no expectations going to varanasi at all on that trip just to visit friends. But you hadn't worked together then on your first book, which was the five-year plan. So you'd already had a pattern for a book in mind. Um, Yeah. Well, I only met Kakasha once. Mm -hmm. We didn't work together. I ended up working in uh, Rajasthan instead with Nandita Devraj, which was kind of, it was just meant to be. So Kakashan and Jitendra, how did you two meet one another, I wonder? (laughs) <laughs> we are working in World Literacy Actually, uh, there is an organization, World Literacy of Canada and WLC. It is funded by Canadian government as well. Uh-huh. And uh, Kakesha was working there for 10 to 12 years. And uh, she was the oldest employee of that organization since World Literacy started working in Varanasi. And actually that organization especially was focused for literacy, for uh-huh. the literacy program for adult literacy and children kindergarten in rural area of the Varanasi. And she was just looking the project, visiting to the villages, 400 villages in Varanasi. And somehow I went there for a job opportunity. So I was appointed as a teacher for some tutorial classes over there. Mm -hmm. And later on, they promoted me in the same project where Kakesa was handling because it was a huge program. Mm -hmm. And she was handling 400 villages, 400 teachers in each villages and uh, 12 supervisors. So she was handling as a project coordinator. Mm-hmm. But uh, as long as the project workload was there, they promoted me in that particular project. So me and Kaksa just met first time in the project there. Mm-hmm. And I was unknown f- uh, for such kinds of activity because I never did that. Because my uh, academic uh, is completely from business uh, school. Uh-huh. So, uh, so I was not in the habit of, you know, doing social activism. So in the beginning, I used to spend my most of the time with her to learn how she uh, handled such a, a huge activity. Mm-hmm. So I learned many things from her and I was very much inspired and impressed by her activity and her personality. And uh, yeah, after that, uh, we started spending more time after the job and we decided to work independently for our local community uh-huh. and uh, uh, because there was a you know platform uh, she already had founded uh, an organization Tanabana Trust it is uh-huh. charitable trust uh-huh. so it was founded uh, in 2009 by Kagesha Khan and Professor Deepak Malik uh-huh. Professor Deepak Malik is a retired professor from Wa- um, Banas Hindu University in B- Varanasi. And he was uh, also Gandhian. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah, very much Gandhian. And he was also director of Gandhi Institute uh, of, his studies. of his studies in Varanasi. 
and kakasha's uh, whole background uh, is completely gandhi family she spent her whole life from childhood in the gandhian background uh-huh. so there was no class of interreligion and intercaste in her family but once uh, we decided to get married each other so there was a big uh, challenge in my family yeah the uh, the sad thing is religion like books and even like technology should be something that does bind people in a way and makes us excited about what it means to be in the universe something we all have in common that excitement about being a, but uh, unfortunately it doesn't always work like that it's often used to separate people isn't it and it to accrue political power to the you know to to a small numbers of people uh, really so it, it doesn't yeah there was something also behind me uh-huh. because my, i just came from um, the political families uh, okay one... uh, yeah <laughs> and yeah. you know uh, in india the current ruling party it's like a, you know i can say officially it's a communal party uh-huh. they don't uh, accept such a you know incidents and happenings in the yeah. society so you've had a difficult time then with your families at least uh, so yeah uh, yeah and probably ongoing these things aren't the things that people let go of easily unfortunately so uh yeah so are you both teaching still or are you just administering the educational program the literacy program with literacy canada or are you still working with literacy canada i mean no still, uh, yeah. in 2017 um, the world literacy canada completely just shut down uh, its program from india uh-huh. because of you know the government uh, has produced themselves that uh, india is more developed now uh-huh. so organizations oh, such yeah. organization uh, think better to shut their program in india due to such reasons they discontinue the funding and program here it's foreign fund that is the problem they shut off foreign funding so it had a huge effect on ngos throughout india yeah. a lot of ngos especially uh, like world literacy canada often mobilized people to advocate in their own interests mm-hmm. and i think that probably not um yeah well that's what literacy itself does isn't it so exactly. <laughs> so i want to throw in my own impressions of the book other imaginings as an artist book from my own experience as an art librarian with art and media sort of generally and it seems to me this book is very different from most artists books i come across which are the offspring of individual artists and their own individual imaginings you could say <laughs> this book is about collective imaginings and so it's very much about people the book is a collection for one thing i mean it's a collection of individual images every page in the book is a work of art by a different artist all the works make a social or political statement in one way or another like most artists books the book tells us about itself you know it is like i say a binding technology after all and it's a binding technology talking about what it means to bind things together it's about binding but not just binding of images or text but it's about binding people and our need to get along with one another and our need to get along with the earth that we all come from and return to So our conversation today is going to be I think mostly about people although we're also talking about a book and a work of art. So I guess to start maybe I could have each of you talk also about yourselves in particular and your contribution to this book or what seems to me to be a window into the world that it does come out of. So I don't know uh, Aaron you want to start out? Well, I mean in a real way it started out of curiosity. Mhm. Everything I knew about Gandhi ashrams I had learned from wearing khadi when i was in india 
And I was fascinated with this shoulder bag, this Jola that I had, and had some artwork on it. And there was something very mannered about it. It seemed like it came from an earlier time, perhaps. It wasn't from 1990, that was for sure. There was a, a sensibility. And as I traveled around in India in 1990, I came to realize that the idea of progress and society, that there's different scales of time and uh, velocity coexisting in the world all the time, that some of us have certain advantages that accelerate our, our ability to, uh, to project ourselves into space. Like myself, I took a plane, you know, I was able to take a plane and I was traveling by local bus and sharing the bus with commuters that are going to their fields, perhaps. There were more questions than answers. It gave me a way of looking at my own experience back in America and realizing that this wasn't the baseline mm -hmm. of the world. That was quite interesting. Like I didn't realize until I got out of America <laughs> that the United States and the Midwest, I'm from Iowa, mm -hmm. you know, farm country, that isn't necessarily the baseline of the whole world. Mm -hmm. Over the course of carrying this Jola around when I came back, I realized that it was homespun. And then I started to wonder about who spun it. And I knew a, just a description that, that they came from Gandhi ashrams. And, and I just wanted to understand different notions of time and existence because I'm, I'm realizing that it's a relative feature of our own individual experience. And so I instigated the project initially to reach across experiential worlds. Mm -hmm. My own world is so different. I had no connection at all to Gandhian philosophy or anything really until I actually instigated the project and was involved in it. It was a, out of a desire to have new perspectives on where I actually am now. That's the funny part about the project is, is this uh, deeply engaged and in fact, compelled to engage with India and South Asia and really the people of India, that it all actually reflects back on me and the world that I'm living in now it helps me to make sense of how I grew up, the dynamic here in America. I can't quite explain it, but you never really know where you're from until you've stepped outside of it. Interesting, all this comes out of the bag and the image on the bag, also a work of art that's talking to you a lot. This actually has a, has a big effect on you, this conversation with this uh, object yeah. in a way. So I only had one example. Uh -huh. Yeah, That was a funny thing. For 10 years, I had only one Kadi Jola, one example. And it took me years to realize that there was probably a whole culture. The whole project was actually based on just a, an educated guess that this wasn't the only example. You know what I mean? It's, it's funny, but it was like a strange sort of obsession. I just, something wouldn't leave the question. And the style of it, when you're studying art and you're thinking about pop art and you're studying Warhol and trying to understand what the real implications of a soup can are, what does the democracy of a screen print mean? I loved his quote about no one can get a better Coca-Cola. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. no matter how rich or how poor you are, a Coca-Cola is only a Coca-Cola. Yeah. And there was something about that and the, the idea of multiples and the, and the kind of diffusion of the high art canon in such a way that it can become accessible to all. I found that really interesting. And when I applied that to the notion of a native village Indian cultural context, like a capillary 
economy of like diffusion throughout society in order to create the concept of a nation and a sense of service, a socialist kind of interconnectedness of economies. Mm-hmm. There was something, you know, that how that kind of played into the notion of pop art. And I wanted to see how that worked on a personal level in India somehow. That makes sense. Because yeah. it's the best example I know, you know, since independence, you know, there was this great opportunity for a, a very ancient and deep and incredibly beautiful society to reconfigure itself around a new set of ideals mm-hmm. and a different political reality that had been dominating, you know, the world, you know, you, you know colonialism. And after the Second World, the uh, collapse, really, of the colonial program throughout the world. Yeah. And I think India had and has really this fantastic opportunity to reimagine ways of building a nation state. There's so much potential in India, so much brilliance and um, beauty. And there's so much there. There's so much culture there. And it's ancient and it's multicultural right from the get-go, isn't it? That's the wonderful thing about it. It's not yeah. one, just one culture. So uh, Absolutely. I mean, to be fair, I got to say, in typical human fashion, we found a way to really screw up something very beautiful. Uh-huh. Like the United States, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to be honest, I see Modi's running of India and the kind of us Hindu Vata politics reflected in the uh, Trump cult that we have yeah. here in America. Yeah. You know, I don't think we're any more stable. I think Americans are, are kind of kidding themselves, really, if we think that we can avoid the pitfalls of communalism because we have it. We have yeah. a caste system as well. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I see it in many things. I mean, I grew up in the 50s, 60s, when, of course, the Nazis were the great evil, uh, fascists were the great evil that we all bought into that, of course, rightfully so. But I can see what happened to the Germans, you know, in the 1930s. Uh, You know, they went down the wrong road and we're standing at the front of that same road, all ready to trip right down at the same same as they. So there was a quote that actually helped me through the Trump years that I came across on my Facebook feed. It was Gandhi's quote. And the quote is, when I despair, I remember that through history, the way of truth and love have always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fail. Think of it, always. Mm-hmm. Beautiful thought and uh, very heartening. So uh, anyway. If I may comment if I, on that, I also have to acknowledge, too, that the focus on understanding Gandhi for me personally was a way of understanding and processing the violence of our society and and of our history. You know, how can we find a solution that doesn't involve compounding the evils of our pasts? How do we honor the United States and make it a better place to nurture what's good about it without repeating, you know, the genocidal conduct of the past? And that starts within. Uh, That was something that I realized that what's held my attention in Gandhian philosophy is the mystery of nonviolence and also of uh, personal growth and that trying to make it better from the inside with the individual. Yeah. So specifically so as I do. Kakas, Sean and Jatendra, what is it about the book that excited you? I mean, and how does it tie into your own experience of this world that Gandhi helped create, the world of the ashrams? Actually, you know, Gandhi ashrams and the Khadi is very emotional mm-hmm. uh, subject for us, being uh, Gandhian understandings. Once we got to know that uh, Aaron, as an artist, uh, 
is try to make a artist book on khadi then it was you know something uh, two artisan going to meet uh, each, other. Uh, each other because khadi itself is kinds of art mm-hmm. you know the process it's go through uh, during its uh, productions and the spinning and weaving everything so it uh, go through many peoples and many processes mm-hmm. it has itself a kinds of art and if there is somebody is also going to make another arts on <laughs> that particular process it's going to be really very am- amazing for us for the world as well if somebody really underst- understand this so it was really like very excited excitement for us uh once we got to know that we are going to create a khadi book and uh-huh. on the khadi uh, this is very unique work yeah there's there's something magical about that homespun fabric isn't it that's what we're talking about and that it comes from the earth and people spin it in their homes and gandhi does form a whole world around this activity doesn't he i mean a whole way of life that is contemplative in many ways uh and tied to the earth uh, it, it does seem for me looking at uh, you know at it from a distance a wonderful thing of course spinning and weaving you know anybody that's interested in textuality hits on those metaphors right away that um you know text means textiles doesn't it in, in some really? sense but yeah yes. it does yeah <laughs> same root yeah so but yeah just wonderful kakashan you you do have experience living in an ashram yes do you both go into that culture still i mean are, are the ashrams still viable i suppose that's one one question i'd have um people still have these communal places that are based on gandhi's teachings i suppose the similar example would be the israeli kibbutzim right aaron is that socialist yeah. communities but- i would correlation yeah definitely yeah. so are the ashrams still going strong or are they uh having a, they must be having a hard time with globalization now um uh, small farms uh, based on cotton growing and spinning and uh, and then distributing what people make uh, does that make sense to you i mean is that a question that yes now this time ashram was very hard time because is this time the government is coming in that's why in every ashrams the head of the ashrams the maybe manager all this they are uh, attached with the government and they ruled like a, a communal but they shows like a secular uh-huh. this is the difficulty this is the difficulty faces all the employees and the poor classes they face lots of difficulties mm-hmm. you know the gandhi ashram has been uh, very secular place uh, for every one and uh, i must say that uh, gandhi ashram is not place for the religious practices mm-hmm. so that people come there with uh, you know secular mindset they, they don't uh, feel like uh, it's a organization where they can you know express their religious practices first but of course they leave their religious practices and identity once they come in the ashram with the and they try to close to the ashram ideology in in the environment of the ashrams mm-hmm. but now what i am seeing across the india they try to you know plead the government in that case they are practicing some of religious you know yeah. ceremonies mm-hmm. and something happening and uh, the head of the ashrams and you can say managers and the other person 
they try to make a good uh, relationship with the government because ashrams run with the fund of the government mm-hmm. so sometimes they think that if we are not follow more, follow the following the government ideology mm-hmm. they might fail the fundings also what i found that the mindset of the ashrams is now quite changed mm-hmm. they are there because this thing that they can make you know property from that particular uh-huh. ashrams yeah. because gandhi ashram has a huge property across the india mm-hmm. uh-huh. it was yeah, yeah, yeah it was the trustship for the public for the people but now they are you know dealing like they are it's enterprises for them they yeah. want uh-huh. to capture all these uh-huh. so, so what's going on now seems to be a kind of an asset capture mm-hmm. they're, yes they're, you can see land yeah that's what globalization is all about. It's, it's about asset <laughs> capture, you know. It's a good word for globalization, asset capture. So probably what happened in Iowa when, when you were a kid, right? Exactly. Small farms, you know, we all grew up watching Lassie on television, you know, small family <laughs> farm, but those farms are not there anymore, are they? So uh, It's true. Yeah, yeah. But and we, real we, Gandhian are not very attached to the uh, assets. Yeah. So no, that no, yeah. Uh, they don't care such activity due to that, uh, the condition of the ashrams in dilemma. Someone right. is uh, handling for the property and someone uh, following only for the ideology. Yeah. In that case, they are being attacked by the communal ideology. Somehow the Gandhian think that they have to be non-violent. In that case, whatever the activity happening in the ashrams, they are not very much uh, you know, protective. Mm-hmm. They are not in control to save that. how people uh, will focus their life on values over material things. Cotton spinning and Kadi, a lot of that activity traditionally in the West, certainly spinning, if you go back to even Roman times, was done by women. And are women a part of the force of the Gandhi ashrams and the book? I mean, you have a lot of female artists in the book. Yes. When you chose images, there were worms. A lot of women in there. I mean, you wouldn't see that in the West necessarily. If you were looking at pop art, you know, you start going to go through a catalog, you don't see a lot of works by female pop artists. So. Right. I can't speak to women within the ashram. I think Jitendra and Kakashan can elaborate on that more. I would say, curatorially speaking, the way the cur- book was curated was that it had to have at least half women and half men. Uh-huh. And at least half of the artists had to be from South Asia. In this case, with other imaginings, I would say mm. it was the majority of the artists were women and most of the artists are from South Asia. But I think that the question of uh, women leadership within the Gandhi ashram world is, is uh, something I see in my surface understanding of things. But I think Jitendra and Kakashan could, could elaborate on this much better. Actually, Kekasha is saying that uh, there is no leadership in Gandhi ashrams. Oh, good. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He is asking to you, Arun. Have you seen any uh, women leadership in any ashrams? Well, I would say in general, like I would say that that uh, Bina Handa, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this is Honda. She's very powerful. And I noticed that the other teachers at GF. We are talking about the Gandhi ashram. Actually, you know, sometimes Gandhi ashram is a single ashrams representative, which is founded by the Gandhi Gandhiji. Right. But right. many of the organization which was founded later on, on the uh, Gandhian ideology. So Bina Handa, uh, it is the organization of Kaka Kalerkar which was later of Gandhi ashrams. It is many ashrams. It has ma- we have many ashrams across the country which runs on Gandhian ideology and they have a woman leadership. We've, recently, we collaborated with Magan Sangrada. There is a woman, a strong mm-hmm. woman, and we are very impressed with her activity and the dedication towards the society mm-hmm. and for the Gandhi's uh, you know, activism. But in general, when, when you talk about Gandhi ashrams, you uh, never see never see any ashram. If any yeah. woman living there, behind that, yeah. she's telling that the man force, as you talk about in the production fact, and huh. the activity in the ashrams. Hmm. Uh, which is mostly done by the women. Yeah, that's definitely true. That's been what I see at, at Manav Seva Saniti, that the leadership, it's mostly men and that the real work gets done by women. Hmm. I, I would say that seems to be a universal yeah, trend. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's something we need to work on with, uh, with the upcoming book, actually, with the Seeds Project. One thing I include that Tanavana Trust hmm. is a <laughs> women leadership organization. We are not a Gandhi ashram. Thomas, you should probably know that in truth, really, this whole project, other imaginings and and the SEEDS project that's going on now, nothing happens without these two. Uh Tell us what the SEEDS project is. This is one step back from spinning, yes? This is all about cotton growing up out of the earth, isn't it? It's about the earth as much as anything. I mean, it seems to me the book is anyway. The SEEDS project is you know, the first two books are printed onto cutty cloth. Mm-hmm. And at this point, we realized that we had never considered where the cotton had come from, who had grown the cotton. And that seemed to be absolutely crucial to understanding Gandhi's program and his legacy in India. And so Jitendra and I, you know, and Kakashak discussed the plan. And eventually we got funding to do it from a, a gentleman named Frank Williams, who's an incredible patron. And then we were about to start and the COVID crisis hit. Hmm. And so that changed the situation significantly. And that set me back on my heels. And it took a little while. And I realized that, in fact, nothing had changed for anyone, especially not the farmers. They continue to work and they continue to do what they must. And in reality, Jitendra and Kakashan had created other imaginings entirely remotely, you know, in collaboration with me. So they're the primary producers. So I realized that we'd already done this once before and it was completely doable again. The difference is the Seeds Project is a little more epic in the sense that we've commissioned farm families in the Warda district. We've commissioned their cotton crops for a single season. So the Seeds Project is about focusing on the farmers as individual families and kind of putting a face and a name to the reality of cotton production in the world. Jitendra recommended that we work with organic cotton farmers, showing the positive potentials, the the proactive change that needs to come if we're going to have a sustainable ecosystem. My initial impulse was to work with 
farmers that were using uh, genetically modified cottons and actually go into the crisis that that engenders. It's precisely why environmental studies here were so interested in other imaginings, actually, because of that aspect, the organic aspect. Because cotton is a dirty industry, it can be in terms of pesticides. I mean, all of Texas is a big poison bath because of all the cotton they grow there. I mean, apart from other problems they have. Jitendra has been the prime mover in making all this happen. Went down to Warda with his family, and we worked out a situation with a young man named Kartik, and he is filming the cotton fields of Mahesh Parteki. And once a week, he goes out into the cotton fields from a sprout to the present where they're harvesting and filmed an entire day as a time-lapse film. So we're creating a 10-minute time-lapse film, a documentation of this very cotton crop growing in Mahesh's fields. And now is the time that the season is happening. I think Jitender could elaborate more on Mahesh's family and, uh, and just what it's like to work with them in Umri village. Yeah. Mahesh belongs to tribal community. They are living with the very least material and resource in that village. Mm-hmm. But the village is beautiful mm-hmm. because it's surrounded by the jungles and forest mm-hmm. and animals. And they are working very hard, but with the nature. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to consider it's very hard work, isn't it, farming? But it's what they do. Could you speak about the conditions of uh, Mahesh and, and uh, Satikant? I was shocked to find how the cotton crop for this season may only produce about, I think it's like 30,000 rupees of income for their family. Depends on their whole productions because right. uh, they are not uh, very much sure about right now. Because this season, the crop got damaged due to heavy rain continuously for 44 days so it damages almost uh, 50 to 70 percent so 30,000 rupees is about 400 dollars by the way that's income for six months of work so they're suffering a potential 50 percent to 70 percent loss against what they actually were hoping to grow this season. Yeah. And then besides political and economic devastation that's happening to farmers, they have to contend with climate change then, right? Also, yes. the weather, yeah. As farmers always do, they have to worry about the weather. So they're a family of three, Mahesh, his mother, Satyakant, and their younger brother. So the cotton crop, will it do more than provide support for the seeds project? I mean, will they sell the cotton on the market besides this? Is it all being Produced for the book, we're purchasing, I believe, the whole of their. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh, and I see. Oh, that's great. So uh, <clears throat> we're, we're paying at a, at a premium, but we're yeah. and we're including a significant bonus that will uh, help them out. So then you paid for the original seeds, then, which is a small part of what goes into we're growing cotton. The cost of the seeds, I'm sure, it's mostly labor. But Jitender can comment on this more. He's the person that was on the site, but the. Uh, the impression I get is that, that there's a, a great willingness to work with us because uh, it gives a sense of agency uh, to tell their story. And no yeah. one's really listening to the conditions of people uh-huh. generally, at least not in the West. It's wonderful then, then by doing what he does as a farmer, doing what the family does as farmers, they're telling a story at the same time because of the project, which is a wonderful thing. Really, when I think about it, it's almost a miraculous idea. You know, everything comes from the earth in one way or another. 
and certainly all our books in, in a way, you know, paper has grown. Uh, India has a wonderful ancient paper industry, but, you know, growing a book from seed, there's just some things as a metaphor, it's just a wonderful thing, you know, because it's like the oak representing the idea that comes from one small idea and then grows out into One thing I, I learned recently, I've been wrapping my mind around, 60% of India's population is works in the agriculture uh -huh. sector, I believe. Uh -huh. Yeah, and that's pretty interesting. And so that's an enormous percentage compared to the United States, which I think is far lower. Yeah. But it only accounts for 11% of the GDP. Most farmers in India are subsistence or just barely generating income through their fields. Yeah. Cotton is an important crop in India, isn't it? I think it's a, uh, maybe the second or, oh. or close third. Yeah of the, the, the world's production of cotton. Oh, I didn't know that. Massive. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's massive. And the region that we're working in is 80% is involved in the agriculture sector. Oh, okay. And it's also happens to be the epicenter of, we didn't know this when we started the project. We actually decided to do the project because of its proximity to Sevagram, yeah. oh. which is Gandhi's final ashram. You know, as you were saying about growing a book from seed, we wanted to consider Gandhi's relationship to Kadi and to agriculture. And so the symbolic of that choice was paramount. Yeah. It wasn't until after we started with that we realized that in fact, Warda is the epicenter of farmer suicides in India. It's actually uh, put an enormous amount of gravity into what this means. Well, we should talk about that farmer suicides, because that's what gives this whole conversation the gravity that it has, isn't it? That the plight of Indian farmers is so extreme that many are committing suicide, not just a few either, but I mean, when they were keeping track, it was huge numbers, I understand. Yes. Is that true, Jitendra? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's true. It's almost uh, 10,000 farmers every year commit suicides. That's a horrible. I mean, that's a kind of genocide, forcing people into that situation to either starve or kill themselves or have no hope at all. Everything they know, because they are so tied to the land, is going away. Because of globalization, that is the culprit here, isn't it? Yeah, extractive capitalism. Yeah. We don't pay the value of what it is that we consume. Yeah. We buy low. And then one of the things that this kind of a project and that art generally is able to do, and I've talked about this on the show with art historians about monuments in the United States, is that it commemorates trauma, essentially, and loss. And it can commemorate it in a way that it doesn't draw attention away from it, but it actually causes people to realize what's happening, especially as it's happening. And we have that situation in the United States here with monuments like the new lynching monuments in Montgomery, Alabama, mm -hmm. commemorating the murder of black people by racists and by the state itself, uh, as we saw in the example of George Floyd. And one thing a monument can do, can it, it can commemorate and then honor, in a sense, the people that are sacrificed in, in this kind of situation and in your situation as well on the farms. And I don't know, during the Depression, we were in the same spot a little bit, weren't we, Aaron? Uh, and that the farmers were losing their lives. Uh, you know, we blamed it on climate change and the weather at the time, but it wasn't just that. It was that the small farms were being bought up at the time mm -hmm. by the banks. 
And that's been ongoing. And of course, as we said, your home state, Iowa, was very much affected by this reality. But I don't recall, although maybe it was rubbed out of history without a monument, I don't recall thousands of Iowans or Midwestern farmers committing suicide because they were losing their farms. Is that right, Aaron? Well, I think there was an economy to to take refuge in. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, that's was, true. They could move to the cities. There were I mean, alternatives, it, it, yeah. We don't have mega slums surrounding Des Moines, Iowa, filled yeah. with people who've lost their land. To your statement about monumentality, I think it's a beautiful thought, really. I do think that the book, the Seeds book that we're making is a kind of monument, a kind of moving uh-huh. m- monument. And I think it's appropriate to the nature of the world that we're in now. Ideally, I would like to see it more expressed in India, where mm-hmm. it's really needed. When we finish this book, I would like to present a copy of it to the National Gandhi Museum, where Jitendra and Kakashan have worked with Mr. Honda to have an exhibition of other imaginings, which will uh-huh. be going up in the near future. Uh-huh. Hopefully it's- we can really publicize this in some way, you know, in the West to draw attention to the plight of Indian farmers and the situation in India and the effects of globalization. Agreed. I think Vassar is an appropriate venue. Yeah, yeah the- we would think so too. So The idea of service was something that we really focused on in other imaginings. Gandhian service, and also kind of correcting some of the record of it a little bit too. Dr. Ambedkar was not honored by the uh, the Qadi industry at all, KVIC. And neither did I see any elements of um, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan. What I realized in the process of doing this, and, and you learn a lot about the workforce that produces Qadi, at least at the Manav Seva Sanidhi Ashram that we do a lot of work with, there are 700 women of that particular ashram, and they uh, homespin mm-hmm. cotton into khadi thread, and then that thread is collectivized and woven on handlooms at the ashram. It's really a kind of social safety net. It's like the uh-huh. last resort, yeah. actually, for a lot of people. It's not necessarily something that people set out. No one sets out to be a spinner, uh-huh. I don't think. Uh-huh. Not really, except on the spiritual aspect. But in reality, it's it's a, a, a form of uh, of social welfare, of yeah. creating work for people and work that has dignity. Mm-hmm. There's a dignity to it. But Mr. Honda of the Gandhi Hindustani Sahitya Sabha, he tells me that some women that are spinning are the sole income of their families, some uh-huh. of them. And he said that some women, they're only making between a dollar and maybe two, at possibly $3 a day at most. Mm-hmm. But they may be supporting as many as 10 family members with that. So the depth of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of um, I don't even know, I don't even have the word for it. That's the depths of the, um, the situation. Yeah, it's, it's beyond philosophy in a sense. So the focus for me became on the Sarvodia workers, the people that actually make that kind of reality possible. Because people give up a great deal to live lives of service. And the, the need for such services is just immense. There's, there's a deep reservoir of that. And so to go on to the SEEDS project, what I realized in the process of this, you know, as I studied more about economies, especially during the um, Occupy Wall Street demonstrations and studying income inequality and, that, and applying what I came to understand to the project, I began to see the capillary relationships, mm-hmm. right? 
where does this cotton come from? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, like you've got we this. Don't ask that question very structure. often. Yeah. yeah, like who is this? You know, and then I look around and I and I, you know, just a little bit, and I you find you read a little bit more about the plight of cotton farmers that it's it's layer upon layer upon layer of uh, interdependence, and somehow it arrives here in the United States as a as like a cheap T-shirt I can buy for twenty bucks. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like five bucks. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I see T-shirts for sale for two and three dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So how is this vast glut of cotton finding its way into into Western societies? And I think, oh, oh, you know, it's it's coming from you know cotton farmers yeah. around the world. And so I started studying cotton and the uh, the history of cotton and there's a book by uh, Sven Beckert mm-hmm. called Empire of Cotton it's a it's a real master's class on uh, global economies yeah. 10 years ago actually before I met you guys I had had the notion to grow a book from seed I liked the idea but it wasn't until just this last June that I was able to find the funding to do so I've always been obsessed from the very beginning with trying to figure out how to do a five-year plan project in America, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. You know, because that's the criticism I get. Why are you doing this thing in India and not here? Like, why can't you think this way here at home? I mean, Gandhian philosophy about Swadeshi is about locally produced, locally supported, local activism. And here I am <laughs> taking, uh, using, bless you, using a digital technology and kind of a global infrastructure to apply to a Swadeshi artifact. There's a deep contradiction in this. And the only way I can really reconcile that is by applying the logic of it, what I'm learning, doing to the society in which I live. And it it has that illuminating quality. So I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but that's what the seed project is about, kind of trying to understand where does this cotton come from? And what are the implications for me? And in what way am I consciously complicit? So people know what we're talking about. We're talking about other imaginings. It's a book of images. And the images are all by different artists. A lot of female artists, as we said in there, but also a lot of South Asian artists. And then some Western artists, some of whom we would recognize, like Jenny Holzer and Yoko Ono. So can you talk about that? What you did as curators to round these images up? And do you have favorite images in the work? Favorite mm-hmm. artists that you work with? Yeah. Favorite artist is my Arun Chilev. I think uh, about the artworks, uh-huh. it's better, it would be better Arun Sinift would answer because uh, we are focused to work to create Hadi. Uh-huh. Ah, okay, the, the, <laughs> the support material. The truth is, is that I probably, among the three of us, I'm probably the most centered on the art as a process. But this is have, a traditional process in India, isn't it? Color printing on fabric. I mean, it's it's not it's not yeah. anything that you brought from the United States and asked them to do. Yes. No. Okay. This is kind of interesting to me anyway. This is what I found when I was living in Varanasi in um, 93, 94. I lived for about a year. I fell in with some uh, murtiwalas, uh, people making these temporary religious sculptures out of um, straw and clay. And some of them are quite monumental. They can be quite tall. And the family had been doing it for generations and generations and generations. They were originally from Bengal. And they considered themselves Bengali, even though they probably lived in Varanasi for 100 years. And they work in a continual cycle of creating sculptures for these festivals. And seeing these being built, they are 
absolutely as fine and as beautiful as any classical sculpture you would ever hope to see in a museum. You know, the proportions are all perfect. This, the surfaces are, are very incredibly thoughtful. The symmetries speak to a, a, an aesthetic that's like really ancient and is part of the, uh, the cultural weave of India, which you, which you really get a sense of in, in Varanasi. And I would hang out with these guys and I realized that they didn't relate to art the same way I had been taught to think of it. Mm-hmm. They saw their art as, as part of the community, as essential to the weave of where they were. They didn't see any separation of themselves as artists from their neighbor. You know what I mean? It was all part of, it was funded by small donations in the community. They would all band together, put their rupees together and then purchase one of the sculptures from them. So then that would become part of the neighborhood Mm -hmm. thing. And Mm -hmm. there was no sense of authorship necessarily, no grand scheme of the, uh, the individual. Mm -hmm. And that was very enlightening to me because these gentlemen, Bansi Pal, Gopal, and the Chitranjanji are masters of this art form. And they only had started taking pictures, you know, like maybe a few years before I appeared in the early 90s. So they had no record at all of anything they had ever really done, except for like vestiges. And also true, these sculptures only exist for a day or two. Yeah, that's what struck me as amazing about them is that they are submerged into the Ganges and that's the end of them, right? I mean, they just, so they come out of nowhere and they go back into nowhere in a sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, They come out of the earth actually, and they go back into the earth with what uh, Martin Heidegger would call the earth as opposed to the world. And they are of the world for a moment because they're of the culture that creates them, which is a culture of people and uh, traditions, but they come from nowhere and they go back down to, you know, into this kind of hidden hidden world, world of the river itself. And just a really kind of wonderful thing and maybe, you know, I'm thinking that that's the solution to globalization, in a sense, to this kind of change of consciousness about the fact that we are wedded to the earth in a strange way. And, uh, and much of what the earth is about is removed from us. We don't understand it. It's a mystery. And we're part of this mystery. And maybe that's the thing that can save us from globalization and can save even the ashrams. I, I don't know. But I mean, it seems to be an impossible task with globalization coming down the road. But on the other hand, the fact that the ashrams are based on growing things and spinning and uh, are, are so tied to the earth, which is our mother, after all, like it's mm-hmm. where we all end up. And it's where we all come from. Uh, maybe there is a kind of mystery there that can solve the impossible problem. I don't know. I'm just I, speculating. No, I don't oh, need to please, everything, I think but, what you're saying is rings absolutely true. And I'm glad you brought it up because that impermanence, that actual thing of impermanence is the thing that we've forgotten, yeah. you know, and what we don't teach anymore mm-hmm. here in the West, especially to art students. You know, we're all thinking about, you know, how do we get our work into the collection of the Prado? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, you know, we all paint for the cultural canon, but our actual impermanence is really dismissed and trivialized in a way, I really do get a sense that we are hiding from that connection, that it's even a question is part and parcel of of our cultural uh, function. So with young people, I notice, you know, coming here to Vassar, you know, Vassar College, quite a number of even students in my own classes are from South Asia. They're both Pakistani and Indian and very well prepared for college. You know, maybe these are your students from somewhere down the road, possibly, I mean, somewhere in the past uh, who have really gone on to educate themselves 
and are part of the modern world and they want to be part of the modern world, of course. I don't think they had longings to go back to India and live on an ashram. And that seems to me not necessarily a wholly bad thing. The fruits of your education, whatever they are, can be good, even in a global economy, I suppose. Yeah. This is what I'm getting keep, at, but yeah. Can't keep the kids on the farm once they've been. Oh, no. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. There's an old farmer joke. One farmer says to the other, like, what are you going to do if you win the lottery? And the farmer thinks about it for a second. He goes, well, I think I'll just keep farming until the money runs out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, good, good you know? so. so anything we didn't talk about that we should have talked about, especially thinking of Jatendra and Kakasan, if there was anything you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked about. One thing I would like to answer, Arun, uh, because Arun started with Dr. Ambedkar. I do respect and I love Dr. Ambedkar what he did for India and what he did for the poor class of our society. But I would like to, you know, raise this point. Gandhi has a very constructive and very comprehensive economy set up for the village. But uh, Dr. Ambedkar was very much uh, convinced for the uh, industrializations. And he has no constructive economy ideology for ruler community and ruler of uh, India. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Gandhi was more practical and it is now still more practical than uh, Ambedkar. Yes, that's an important point. People don't even think of Gandhi as an economist. Yeah. That's, that's the piece I, I think, you know, that I find most fascinating is that Gandhi was actually a visionary economist mm -hmm. with thinking in a, a counter-industrial Kind of way because yeah. the circumstances for India are unique in terms of uh, labor force and agriculture. It's very different from the rest of the Western world. He's truly a visionary. And thank you, Jitender. That's something that always comes back. We are very hopeful and thank to Arun that he decided yes. uh, to start with farmers. You know, it is really very tribute to those farmers who are not alive now but uh, mm. we can realize how difficult their life is because uh, we are now very close to the those farmers who commit suicide and uh, we are filming their lifestyle we are making documents and now we can proudly raise their voices uh, amongst the government and the policy makers that they produce everything for everyone. But we are not, you know, very uh, much thankful for them. Mm -hmm. So due to C to Khadi project, I really thank to Arun that he decided to start with the farmers. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can tribute some their contribution for, you know, making India and making as a human being to survive on this planet. So due to the farmers, so I am very much thankful. A nice intersection of art and economics in a way, you know, um, both of them fundamental to being human on the planet. So I realized that the previous two books are good and important in their way and that they illuminate a great deal in the, in the process. The first book was more romanticized. Yeah. Projection. Yeah. And every image, by the way, is a thousand words. I mean, worth a thousand words. It's very true, probably more than a thousand words, but they're really emblems that, you know, you can walk through these books 
slowly and look at the images and get a tremendous amount of knowledge and understanding about the world they come out of right from the images themselves. This project that we're working on now is much more focused on local artists mm-hmm. and Servodio workers in the in that region. I haven't looked for any uh, celebrity artists or I haven't looked away it's just been the focus of the work is to be as local as possible. Well, that can be problematic, can it? Celebrity artists? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I've always avoided that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to be honest, yeah, yeah, I yeah. never invited anyone who, who I didn't feel really had a, a deep relationship or an understanding of what the book was about. Yeah. In this process, though, I feel, to Jitendra's point on the Seeds Dakati project, working with farmers, I woke up this morning with a, a, a deep sense of dread actually, at the thought that we have bitten off something really big. Hmm. And to do this well is going to take a lot of sensitivity and real care and focus. Hmm. How we communicate in this project, I feel the stakes have never really been higher. Because there was something retrospective about the other imaginings that you picked up on. But this book is very much of, of the moment now. It's not a look back. And I don't even dare really to look into the future very far. In a sense, like what I feel what we're doing together is looking at the present reality for farmers in a village called Umri in Warda district in Maharashtra, in the very center of India. And I'm humbled, to be honest, by the faith and the trust that Kakasha and Jitendra are showing. I mean, that we're showing in each other to make this, uh, make this a reality. And the, the artists are amazing that we've curated. We've found about 30 artists. And they're all incredibly remarkable people. Mm-hmm. Five out of six are South Asian. Mm-hmm. And a large number of them are uh, local, regional artists. Mm-hmm. I would like to point out that um, Jitendra and Kakashan and, and most of our collaborators do come from farm families. Mm-hmm. This couldn't be done by city people. I'm a city person. I can't claim to be a farm person. I was raised proximate in Iowa to, you know, so I got a sense of it, but this project is guided and being defined by people who live on the land, yeah. intim- intimately connected. So I'm not driving this bus really so much as trying to be as observant and, uh, and sensitive as I possibly can to what we're learning together. Jitendra couldn't have said it better. And, and I really love you guys. Honestly, I can't tell you how grateful I am to be working with you both. I really have to thank Bookland Inc. for uh, introducing us, really. Uh-huh. You know, the work of, of uh, Marshall Weber and uh, Belden Sazen and Monica Johnson is really deep. I learned a lot from them. And to be honest, the success of our project here in the United States has been exponentially accelerated by their engagement with our work and getting it into special collections. On my own, it would have died on the vine a long time ago. So uh, Brooklyn really deserves a lot of credit for anything yeah. that we're accomplishing now. Gallerists do have their uses, certainly. And, uh, you know, the best artists will always acknowledge that. So. They're the real deal. Okay, so I'd like to thank the three of you, Aaron Sinnott, uh, Kakashan Khan, and Jitendra Kumar for being on the Library Cafe today to talk about your wonderful book, Other Imaginings. Thanks a million for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.